that's something that takes time to learn and uh, you know there, there's there's different ways of learning that so what's going through my life my mind at 18 oh um enjoying myself and having no fear and eventually you get knocked and eventually things don't go don't go how you expect and you start realizing that you you're not infallible you need to any and, and life is about learning no degree no problem any problem we can solve them insomnia keeps us evolving we growing in the knowing the wisdom is flowing if you didn't know now you know where i'm going Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today's guest is Richard Barlow, the CEO of Weijo. And I'll let him introduce himself. But before he introduces himself, I just want all of you to subscribe to the podcast, watch on YouTube, listen on your favorite platform, and tell a friend about the No Degree Podcast. So, hey, Richard, do you mind giving a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Hey, my name's Richard. I'm the founder and CEO of Weijo. Uh, I'm 44. I've just turned 44. Uh, I, uh, I have no degree. Uh, and I'm your typical school dropout. But I learned some things very early on in, in my life, uh, such as needing resilience. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing my journey today. That's awesome. Do you mind sharing what your company does? Because it's definitely one of the new age types of companies and it's definitely going to have a huge impact. How would you describe your company? So I set Weijo up eight years ago, and what we are is that we provide a uh, a platform that enables motor manufacturers, they're known as OEMs, where we've set up a platform where we receive live data from vehicles. Now, what people don't know is that the vast majority of new vehicles sold every year, cars, trucks, two-wheelers, have embedded connectivity. So have this ability to connect to a platform to send data from vehicles. And the data can be powertrain data, can be EV data, can be all sorts of different sort of parameters or, or outcomes or insights your, your vehicle is generating. We've, we've built this platform where we now process over 17 billion data points a day. We work with the world's motor manufacturers. We, we have 24 motor manufacturers now contracted to our platform who send us data. And we see 5% of all vehicles moving around, 5 to 6% of all vehicles moving around New York, as an example. So we get huge amounts of data and we generate incredible insights. And then we, but we, and we, we create insights such as we uh, provide real-time congestion data to vendors such as Microsoft. Weijo means we journey. It's this idea of, of having this open dialogue with a community of drivers about the fact their vehicles are generating data and we are the platform of choice in industry. Wow, that's amazing. So eight-year journey. It's interesting because no degree is eight years too. Now, when you started this company, did you kind of imagine it going in this direction or did it kind of even surprise you? Because data has kind of grown in the last eight years. Yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, when I set Weijo up eight years ago, there was there was a plan to get here. Um, there was a number of pivots on the way, inevitably. So when I set Weijo up in 2014, in fact, I, I started doing a proof of concept in 2012, so 10 years ago. And the precursor before we managed to start getting data from motor manufacturers was we, we were building products in the insurance sector. So one of our first customers back in 2000 and 2014 was AXA Insurance, and we built their first mobile product where you could actually create a, a car insurance product through your mobile device, which was very early doors. You know, there's lots of companies now doing that. But eight years ago, that was that was quite un- unusual. 
and that the idea was is that was a, a precursor to prove the value of, of telematic or movement data from a device. And then we use that that platform or that proof of concept to then convince motor manufacturers and we're starting with General Motors to then use our platform to, to send much higher volumes of data from vehicles. So the vision was always to become the platform for all mobility data, whether it's from vehicles, whether it's from mobile apps. But we did, we made a lot of mistakes on the way. We, we, we did a number of pivots, but the core proposition of receipt of being a platform receiving data hasn't changed. Yeah, no, I mean, data is the future. So let's kind of take it back. How was high school like for you? And what did you want to be in high school? Oh, uh, so in high school, I, um, I was always a geek, always a nerd. And um, when I got to about 12, I, uh, 12, 13, I reached out to computer magazines and I, and I asked me if I could review their games, re- review computer games. And I just saw this as a way of getting free games. Uh, and then I realized you got paid. And I remember uh, in, in sort of dollar terms, getting paid $80 per 400 words. And I realized I could write a thousand words a night quite easily. And as a high school kid, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I remember one month I got a $6,000, £6,000, so about $8,000 check from the magazine publishers and i i just gave them just did more and more content and, t- and i showed the teachers and they'd see it and i'd go i've written all this and these pages and pages and then they'd go well why are you not focusing your energies and writing like this for school but but the dollar check was there so uh it was uh you know and that's how it started was uh was being a geek and just writing reviews and reviewing not just games but then i became a, a, an editor of, of content on discs so do you remember cds yeah. and before then four cds floppy discs so i was like the disc editor then eventually of a magazine and then i broadened my reviewing so i then reviewed broader software such as 3d modeling software and uh, i was just this classic geek who and then it was a great it was a great hustle because you know i'd go then to all these computer exhibitions where You'd, you'd, I'd go around saying, "Hey, I write for all these magazines," and then you'd get given free software to review, and it was a, uh, and I'd get, I'd get paid to enjoy myself. It was, it was great. I mean, look, I'm sort of a geek too, and that is definitely a geek's dream, where you get to try these things and you get paid for it. So you're doing this in high school. So did you ever want to go to college? No, no, I I wanted to set a business. So the first of a business I set up was a web design business. It was called New Media Solutions. So I was then, I then started designing websites and this was when, you know, it wasn't even web two, it was web, web one. So this is like Netscape where I remember, I remember Netscape before they even allowed tables and web pages. So to code HTML was not different. This was before JavaScript. Yeah. So I, I had a, so I had a web agency where I just started approaching local businesses and offering to design them websites. So I was doing that from about the age of 15. So 1990s yeah 1993 oh, wow. you know and, and that's when he had a 28.8k modem you know and, and my mum and dad got a second phone line so i was so they they, they could still use the phone because i was always, always online and they charge you per minute to be online so i just started designing web pages and that was my that was my start then i got started then so i was reviewing software i was coding web pages but coding like you know this html was a very simple markup language it was it, there was there was no real sophistication in, in in terms you know so this was before even tables were, were in web pages but now that's 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 what got me started so how did they react when they saw like this 15 year old come in and saying hey i could design a website for you do you know i think at that at that, that point the, the web was so early 
it was so young. I think I think most most businesses embraced it. So I I got I got a full time job as an IT director when I was eighteen, and at that point in life, it, there was just like you know they, they, there was this there was this perception. And you know, I remember getting invited when I was eighteen to a to a conference where, and the headline was, "You don't need experience." And I cringe now, thinking you it's all about experience. You may not need a you may not need you may not need a degree, but you've got to learn. You've got to learn. You know, it's all about, and it takes time to learn. When you're eighteen, you're you're young, you're enthusiastic, you have no fear, and it was great. I learned a lot of that a lot, you know, and I got knocked by creditors who didn't, sorry, not by debtors who didn't pay their bills. You know, it was, it was all part of life's sort of growing, growing pains. Yeah. So your IT director at 18, like what's running through your mind? At that point, you don't ask yourself, what is the downside? And you have no fear. And may, having resilience and no fear are different. And, he, and and at 18, you don't because you have no experience of, you know, being knocked by a debtor who doesn't pay their bill and the consequences to your cash flow and things like that. And that's something that takes time to learn. And, uh, you know, there, there's there's different ways of learning that. So what's going through my, life, my mind at 18? Oh, um, enjoying myself and having no fear. And eventually you get knocked and eventually things don't go, don't go how you expect. And you start realizing that you, you're not infallible. You need to, and, and, and life is about learning. So what came next after that uh, IT director website? Did you keep on doing that business? Yeah, so I, I, I ended up working for, um, for a company where, uh, where I became the technical director. It was a telecoms business. That business, um, when I joined, was turning about $20 million a year. Within a couple of years, uh, that business was turning about $60 million a year. And as technical director, my job was to um, was to was to manage telecom networks, and I learned it all from just working with vendors. So you may remember Nortel in the in the early noughties, and Marconi and Ericsson and um, Sun Microsystems, all vendors that now don't don't exist anymore, or or have, or have now evolved to being acquired. And um, I, I worked for a, 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 a he was a, he was a flawed mentor, but uh, he gave me. He taught me some of uh, life, how to deal with some of life's challenges, but gave me again, kept giving me freedom. And this, and this was the idea. This was this was just around the dot com crash of two thousand. He just gave me that rope to sort of to be unreasonable, but have resilience and be demanding. I was paid very well, and uh, it was an incredible experience. And there was there was highs and lows of uh, going through those pain points, and I, I had huge amounts of responsibility. One of my jobs was to was to lead lead the acquisition process of other telecom companies, and then move their traffic between networks. And I made mistakes. You feel the consequences, but at that age, again, you know, you're still learning about some of the highs and lows. But I say it was an incredible experience. And that gave me the sort of the uh, the flavor and to, to set up set up my own business. How'd you go about learning like all these things? Because now they have online courses, things are so easy. But back then, it was a bigger journey. I mean, by by two thousand, uh, you know, there was obviously AV.com, Alta Vista was uh, so there was there. Were, but but you know, most of learning is about communication. It's about talking to people, and I and I learned that I like I like surrounding myself with people who knew more than me. Um, and I met incredible people, you know, I mean, when, when I was working with, um, say Nortel, I'd be surrounded by a room of, of hardware architects and network architects who, who designed these incredible sort of networks. And I, and I just had this 
insatiable appetite to just to just learn and you know and, and i'd i and i'd work every day and i'd work 18 20 hour days and i'd be the first one in the office and i'd be the last one at night and you know this this was when uh you know this and this was like the this is sort of like the first sort of dot-com sort of um um you know boom and bust and i had an incredible opportunity and i remember um, one of the things we did was royal we but i decided we should create one of the first uh windows clusters with a, with an oracle database running and um, that was really unheard, unheard of in the year 2000 to sort of build that com- sort of complexity within within a software stack that, you know, Microsoft is not what it is now. Back then, it was not, you know, there was Windows NT. and But to cluster that, we had, and I remember I had multiple cores of processors. I just kept learning. I just kept listening. And, and you know, and you have no fear at that age. And there is benefits having no fear. And then there's benefits until you realize you've spent a million dollars on an Oracle license and you can't get it to a, you can't get the software to, to truly, uh, to truly run on, a, on, a, on an eight array cluster. So, but for me, it was just all, all life's rich tapestry. So it was an amazing experience. So what was your biggest accomplishment in that early phase of your life? Cause you mentioned you, you had some highs and lows. What were some of the highs? Yeah, I mean, I mean, building a five nines network, so building a super reliable network. You know, now you, you know you don't think of you know having a network with something called five nines resilience means you know the network only has five minutes of downtime a year. Building that in ninety ninety eight ninety nine year two thousand, that was incredible. Have the having the vendor funding to do that, to be given that opportunity. You know, we we built a true railway. We built this true sort of network that was super reliant, and that there was a great high, and then the the great low was that the years the year two thousand when all this infrastructure needed to be paid for. That was, uh, you know, and that was an amazing experience to learn from. Um, there was, you know, at the time, you know, Norton Network was on a high, but they were they were on a high because they were giving um, vendor funding to all that to encourage massive growth, and they were hedging their bets on who was going to be successful. And um, you know, so I, I learned from that low as well. Wow. So now you work for this big company. You're gaining a lot of experience. You're doing a lot of novel things. What was the next opportunity? So I uh, I set up a business with two of the people called uh, Leadex L E A D X, and Leadex uh, is is a lead trading platform, and I set that up with two of the people in two thousand and four. And the idea was is that um, Google at that time was not super refined in terms of keyword searches. So you go into Google, and this is in the UK. You type in loan, and a bank would. Would, would be interested in taking your loan application. The problem was is that behind the scenes, the bank would only want to be processing 5 10% of all the loan applications coming through. And the same applied for the insurance sector. And a friend of mine worked at a, an investment bankers in London, and he showed me around the office one day, and he showed me these Bloomberg screens where I saw real-time trading of stocks. And I thought to myself, and I sort of saw the challenges from, my, from the internet side of it, I saw these challenges of it, is that, is that, you know, is that Google was sort of, generating this huge amount of volume of pay-per-click inquiries, but they weren't being necessarily refined for different sectors at the time. You know, they're, they're a lot better now. But this is like, you know, 15 years ago. So I thought, well, why don't, why don't I create a platform which provides real-time trading of, of, of live inquiries from Google? Um, so I worked with two of the people and we developed this platform. And that business, we raised, we raised uh, 2 million euro of uh, capital from a well-known VC in Europe. That was the only capital we ever raised. And we became a platform where we worked with, with a lot of insurance companies and a lot of consumer credit issuers and banks in the UK. And um, it went really well. We were profitable within nine months of starting. 
we never raised any other capital. And that was 2004, 2005. Then in two, then 2008 happened, and then in 2008, in one month, we were making $100,000 a month more. The following month, we were losing that. And then we had nine months of having to reset the business because in 2008, was, there, was, there, was a big, there was a big crash uh, you know, with, the, with subprime lending. So we had to reset the business, and that business started scaling again. And that business uh, kept scaling. By 2014, where, when I became non-exec, that business employed 600 people and was making huge profits. And, and I went from me and a couple of other people um, to 600 people. And we went through all the highs and lows. And, the, you know, the real lows were in 2008, 2009, we had to close one of the offices. Half the, we, had to, we had to make half, half the people redundant from the business because 2008, you, your, your debtors weren't paying. You know, they, they, they couldn't afford to pay their bills. And we, we had huge, you know, had a huge, we had a huge sort of asset base of, of, of invoices just unpaid. And it took a long time to unwind that and, and to get people back on track paying their bills. So we went through the highs and lows. And then in 2014, I became non-exec and um, wanted to take some time out because I've been, I've, been, I've been running that business for nearly 10 years with the two people who wanted some time out. And then I decided within a couple of weeks to start WeJo. Nice. Now, you came into WeJo with a lot more experience, a lot, just more vision. Now, did you kind of expect it to go how it did? Because it's like, 2014 was a totally different time in terms of data too, data collection and all that versus now. Did you forecast this trend? No, I mean, I mean, the there was a trend of potentially the data scale. What was difficult to estimate was getting engagement traction with most manufacturers, OEMs. And to try and get traction in a new industry is difficult. You may get the odd hit by sending an email out to someone, but it's difficult. So there's and there's industry events you can present at, but you know when you see these startups presenting at these events, most of the time you're you're having to pay to present at the event, you know, and you're trying to save every dollar, and then you know and, and the, you know there's events out there where if you want to present for twenty minutes, you're paying twenty thousand dollars to to present. In fact, more than that, you know, there's events out there now where they'll charge and you know, they want sixty seventy thousand dollars for a twenty minute presentation. So if you want to be credible. In front of the right audience and have and have access to this, the data of, of the audience attendees, you've got to pay big money. So I started in 2014 with this idea. I had to, power, you know, I needed to also prove that a platform existed. So we managed to get an, an easy, a, 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 a sort of an, an early win of, of winning a contract with AXA, who then became a, a proof point that we had a we had a big brand trusting us, and that mo- gave us motivation to build a platform to actually prove that we could receive data. But meanwhile, we then had to convince motor manufacturers to um, to work with us, and it took nearly four years for motor manufacturers to even think about trusting us with their with their data. And meanwhile, every year, you know, I needed to raise capital from from a group of you know groups of investors. That is all about resilience, and that's all about taking a lot of rejection. And you know, I've spoken to hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have rejected the idea and. Um, and that's when you need to have controlled faith in what you believe is right. Because sometimes maybe someone's telling you, you know, you, you think they're just being negative about your business, but maybe they've got a point. And the bigger the what what experience teaches you, life experience teaches you about is, is that maybe sometimes you know, sometimes you need to be considering another point of view that maybe will give you a different a, a different sort of a direction on, on how you can on how you can make your business successful. So 
the first four years, five years of Ouija were really tough in terms of getting that that momentum going, that that flywheel going. You know, we we won the early, we won an early insurance contract, um, but that was never gonna, but that was never gonna be uh, valuable enough to actually fund a business. And then our big win really was when we won our contract with General Motors in 2018, where they chose us as their preferred partner for for data. And then they said, "Yeah, we've got nine million cars." Do you want to be our? Do you want to be our preferred platform? And that and that was our that was our big win. Yeah. So how did it feel when you got that big win? Oh, I remember. Um, so GM in Detroit, they have they have a they have they have something called the Renaissance Center. It's called the Rensen, and there's four towers, and there's Tower 100, 200, 300, and 400, and dependent on the you know and the and the senior people from GM in each of those towers. And I was invited to go to one of the towers to meet uh, to meet to meet a member of uh, the C-suite of GM, and I remember them saying to me, "We should be choosing this vendor, but we're not. We're going to choose you, and we're choosing you because your hypothesis is is more robust than anyone else we've seen. So we're choosing you." And um, and I remember that feeling when I got in the lift, I'm like, "Wow, you know, we've we've managed to convince the one of the world's biggest car companies to to be to be their trusted vendor." So that was an incredible moment. And that was, you know, and, and I, I've been quoting the times. I've flown to Detroit for more than 43 times. And now we've got 24 motor manufacturers and tier one vendors and fleet providers who we, ha- we, have, we have agreements with. Where, and, and GM became our foundational partner, uh, which has meant we've been able to win huge amounts of uh, other OEM business as well. Yeah, no, I mean, that first big partnership, it's like all those rejections kind of just are distant and they kind of come back to you. So no, that's amazing. Now, I know that you have a partnership with Palantir. Like, how did that sort of happen? So we started needing to operate with, with a number of cloud vendors. So, you know, we, we, have, we, we, we had a, a long-term, long-standing relationship with AWS. We've talked about Snowflake and Databricks, but we were looking for more foundational partners who, who, who shared our vision, um, but also weren't potentially conflicted in terms of, in terms of our strategy because we, we, we pride ourselves on being an independent industry. So that we're trusted, you know, no one else can claim to work with the vast majority of the, of the top five OEMs or the top ten OEMs in the world, and that's because we are independent. You know, we we are we are not we are not aligned with any one OEM or any one software stack. So so we need to find the right vendors, and we started talking to the likes of Palantir, and it became clear that their foundry product could supercharge our distribution, uh, and what they'd done for Airbus in terms of aerospace. It became apparent we could work with them to to do the same for automotive. So it was um, a really interesting tech stack where they'd done incredible things in government. They were now coming to commercial. And one of the things that we had shown is, is that one, we'd we'd built a platform that could cope with huge volumes of data. But secondly, we'd built an, an incredible amount of, o, of OEM automotive partnerships. That is second to none. And so it became a, a really uh, happy, happy relationship. Uh, and apparently have been an incredible partners since we've since we've become public, where they've they've been very public about their own support of Weijo. But I was on the I was on the fa- I was the phone even an hour ago with a with a senior member of Palantir, where we were talking about what we want to do next. So it's been an incredible relationship, but it stems from Weijo having really deep foundational relationships with multiple OEMs, which has taken eight years to build. Yeah, no, I mean that relationship takes so long to build. But they lead to so many amazing things. Now, has your vision for the company kind of changed in these past eight years, or it's still the same foundational vision? Uh, the vision's got broader. So the, the original vision was a data ecosystem for insur- usage-based insurance uh, from connected vehicles. That was that was the core foundation. 
Um, and then what we learned was is that insurance is much broader than just than just something called usage-based usage insurance. It should cover claims. It should cover uh, recovery of vehicles. It should cover repairs of vehicles and the like. So we became much broader horizontally in terms of the insurance proposition. But then we learned from demand from the likes of Microsoft and, and other mapping vendors like Enrix and Recall that actually there's other use cases for connected vehicle data. So my original vision was data ecosystem for use of insurance, narrow, narrow data ecosystem for numerous use cases of connected vehicle data and EV data and autonomous vehicle data. And now what we're finding is that we've built an incredible super fast platform, which we call submillisecond latent platform, it means, that, it means that we know enough real-time process anything. If you can real-time process data, you can also become a real-time com stack. So we can now vehicles, we can we can now enable vehicles to communicate with each other. So my vision's gone from data ecosystem as a UBI vendor to being a data ecosystem and com stack for all connected electric and autonomous vehicles. So our 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 service addressable market has gone from being a $10 billion market to potentially $600 billion market. So you know, the ambition has absolutely grown as the opportunities have, have, have grown, as we've demonstrated our credibility and with, with, with a huge number of, of OEM partners, most, most manufacturer partners we work with. Wow. So now let's kind of look back holistically in your career. What would you say is your biggest accomplishment? And you could choose more than in one. You could choose, let's choose one business, one personal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one personal, incredible. I've got an incredible supporting family, incredible wife, and two two amazing children. You you may get one of the children who are coming and joining us at yeah. some point. They should be in bed, but uh, if they if they join, then I don't mind. And and they and they and they do have a YouTube off. If they do a video for Weijo, then they uh, then they want to know how many views they've had. So uh, so personal, incredible family, business wise, I've had a number of um, a number of sort of amazing sort of highs and uh, accomplishment, accomplishments. Leadex was an incredible exit for shareholders, an incredible sort of outcome for me. And that was one example. Weijo entering the public markets uh, last, last November and being able to prove ourselves to be the dominant vendor in this new industry, which is going to fundamentally change. You know, there is a seismic shift of how vehicles are being used. And we're becoming the trusted platform that, that's going to enable that seismic shift where people are going to start recognizing vehicles just for mobility they don't necessarily need to own. They can just use for for a small period of time, and we can be the platform that enables that all to happen. Yeah, no, that's amazing that you're you have a good support system, and you know the crazy thing is you're probably going to have even bigger accomplishments. Now, what would you say was the hardest period of your life that you went through? Because you've had these highs and lows, and why was it the hardest for you? I mean, there's been a few. I mean, as I mentioned to you before, in 2008. Um, the writing really was on the wall. A lot of people saw it, but because there was such a bull market that with the previous business, you know, we went from 300 people to 600 people in a year. And then we went from 600 people down to 300 people in less than three months. And that was, that was, that was hard on, harder on the people who had to, who had to lose the jobs than, hard, than, than us. You know, we, as founders and shelters in that business, you know, we, we, we had to, we had to put our own money back into business to, to support the, everyone who, who, who we could keep in, in, in jobs. And that was a huge learning experience about what happens when there is a macroeconomic tra- change. And, and that's, you know, we're seeing that now. And then more recently uh, with COVID, again, you know, I mean, there was um, back in Q2 of 20, uh, 2020, the people fundamentally stopped driving cars for a time, stopped driving their vehicles. You know, we had a data point measurement 
And we saw our data points drop by 60% in a, in a 28-day period. And most manufacturers in Q2 2020 were saying, we don't know if people are ever going to drive their cars again the same. And um, that was, a you know, and, 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 and our whole business model was predicated on people buying vehicles, driving vehicles, and suddenly that business model looked, looked, looked over. And then what happened really quickly, though, by Q3 was that actually people like driving their cars and actually people would trust their own vehicle rather than, say, using public transport. So what we learned was that people drove their vehicles differently. So rather than driving to an airport and then getting a short-haul flight somewhere across the US, they'd, they'd rather do a 1,000-mile drive in their vehicle. So we, so, and then because we were a real-time processing business, we suddenly were advising the, the governor's offices around the US and telling them about how how the how the constituents, how how their how their voters, how how the people in vehicles were were just driving differently, and that data was not freely available from anywhere else. So we could show incredible insights. So we've seen the highs, we've seen the lows. Uh, you know, and the lows so the lows are two thousand eight, two thousand twenty with COVID. Back in two thousand, when uh, when 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 I saw uh, vendor fi- vendor finance being overly accessible to every potential scaling.com. So I've been through lots of lots of lows and few highs. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just a part of being in business. It's just there's no way kind of around it. Well and, and the buck stops with you. You know, you can't shy away from that. You can't you can't ignore what's out there. And um, you know, you need to make decisions quickly and you need to make decisions that's right for all your stakeholders and you you've got to be selfless with those decisions. It's it's tough. And that's where resilience again kick, you know, kicks in uh, about you know how you know about you know you need to work through about from your experiences about what's right for everyone or the vast majority of, of your stakeholders. So now Wejo is one of those very interesting types of company because there's so much data and there's a sustainability aspect of it too, right? Because you can give data on traffic, you can give data on that. So where do you see Wejo playing a part in this? Let's say like climate change, congestion. Do you see that being a bigger part in its future? Yeah, so we so we have this mantra of, of what we call of what we say is, is is predicting the road ahead, because we're the only data asset asset in the world that's 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 built entirely from real time data. We see emissions clouds in real time. Um, we see temporary construction work appearing ahead on a road on on the lane of a highway, so we can help vehicles then preempt where they should then change direction to so they're not all held in, in they're not all held then in congestion and the building permissions. We're seeing with EVs the trends of how vehicles are really being driven. So there's not a necessary infrastructure upgrades being done for the grid, where you don't need to upgrade the grid everywhere to be able to support the the, the sort of the, the growing demand of EVs, but actually you need to have a more intelligent approach to it. So our ESG agenda is is broad. And then there's and then there's things like, you know, there's 1.3 million people a year who die on the roads. There's 8 million people a year who die from emissions. Our data can help reduce those deaths on the roads. Our data can help, you know, with, with, by predicting the road ahead, we can help, say, AVs be more intelligent. We can help. So fundamentally, we're focused on, and we call it data for good or smart mobility for good. It's this idea that our data should have should have good for society. And that's very much part, part, part of our ESG strategy. No, that's amazing. And I love it when companies do amazing things and they grow and they really fundamentally change things in ways that we necessarily could not have imagined, especially, you know, I think about, because I was young as a kid in the 2000s, I was happy playing these little flash-based games. And now you kind of look at just how much data there is and how it's actually changing the world. It's just beautiful to see. 
And that's why I set Weijo up. Weijo to me means we journey. And it's this idea of us that you know, there should be an open dialogue around journey data and there should be an open value exchange and there should be a clear reason as to why you want data. You know, we, and it's the antithesis of, of what Facebook has become where people are worried about what Facebook's collecting and, you know, and these, and there's these, there's these rooms that Facebook listens to your conversations and, and, you know, and, and, and that's how the adverts are being, are being, are, you know, so the advert algorithms are all running. And, and what I said to the motor industry when I started, and, and I and I mean this, is that he's like, have an open dialogue with your consumers about what data is in the vehicle so they don't start wondering about why you're cynically collecting data. Because data should have a data. You know, there should be a good use. And to be honest, adver- advertising profiling is not necessarily a bad use of data, but be transparent about it. Be transparent about the, about the data you collect. Because if you're not, then eventually the regulators are, are, are going to overreact to, to the use cases. And actually, data can have huge value, and it does have huge value, and it has and it has a benefit to society, whether it's to reduce deaths on road, whether it's to reduce emissions in cities, whether it's to make sure infrastructures are upgraded in the right areas to support EV demand. Use the data for the right reasons. Now, I kind of want to ask you something a little more personal. What were some of the mistakes you made along the way, right? Because obviously, when you're young... And like you said, experience is everything. Some of these things you just have to kind of learn because you're you're kind of young, you have a certain vision of the world, and then the real world just really just hits you hard. So what are some of the earlier mistakes you've made along the way? So you were, I mean, you've, you've, and you say you, you need to learn from your own mistakes, especially as, as an entrepreneur, it's very difficult. But one of the things I, I didn't learn is that you know, is, is communication is important. If you want to carry everyone on a journey, if you don't openly communicate, all the decisions you're you're making for the business to be successful, then people will not support you when things are going badly, and and business has 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 ebbs and flows, and you know you and it, all it takes is you know a, a debtor to decide not to pay, which can affect your your ability to to to, to pay the payroll at the end of the month. So one of the biggest mistakes I made made earlier on is thinking that I know best and not to and not effectively communicate, and that and that's that's a naivety. That you know, that's confusing resilience with arrogance, and and they say that that's the biggest mistake that I think a lot of people make, and certainly I made was was that you know think you know right all the time, and actually you need to be prepared to listen and, and work and and, if, and effectively communicate, and and recognize that you should surround yourself by people better than you are, and listen to those people, and then together you'll be more effective as a team. And thinking that you can do everything yourself, and I think that's the biggest mistake that a lot of people make is that you know you you think you're infallible, you think you can do everything yourself, you really can't, and you don't want to either. At some point, you need to be able to you need to be able to have a rest yourself. You need to be able to know you can go away for that holiday and, and not feel you need to be working twenty four seven. So I'd say the biggest mistake is not listening. Yeah, I think that's the entrepreneur because as entrepreneurs, we're sort of stubborn and we're headstrong and we're like, yes, I can do this. And our previous success sometimes clouds us like, yeah, I did it before. But it's an important lesson to learn. And it's something that really just changes the rest of your journey. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and you, you can reinvent your history in your own head. Uh, you know, and you can, you know, and it's important that you, that, that you, yourself, I, you know, I say to people, you should be self-effacing. You know, you need to be honest with yourself about about why something went wrong, and you know, and take criticism uh, and learn. Because if you don't, you're going to make the same mistake again and again and again. And that's when you know you, you don't deserve to be in the position you've 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 you've, uh, you've managed to get yourself. And in. then sometimes in entrepreneurship, you'll lose the position, right? That the market will force you out of the position. Your company will sort of go under. Now 
you've obviously had a lot of success. So what were some of the things that you look back and it's like, wow, that was something right I did. And that's something I advise others to kind of do. So I think the biggest, one of the biggest things I would recommend is, is that is that if you communicate effectively with uh, myself and my uh, myself and and and, and an early uh, an, an early uh, director who joined me very early on at Weijo, one of the things I learned from him was is that if with effective communication with your shareholders, even if things are going not as well as you thought they were going to do, if you effectively communicate during the good and bad, you'll still get support. And that's one of the things I've learned is, is that, you know, is, is that Weijo had some low points, you know, until we got that first OEM client, there were points where we just, where, where our, our, our investor reporting was, well, this is all the good stuff, but this is the bad stuff. And then if you're honest with them during the bad times, then they'll still support you. You know, the, you know, we, we, we there was, um, there's, there, you know, there was, there was a console sort of, in the early days, we had a lot of OEM interest, but no real contracts. So we had to keep sharing, you know, the good and the bad. And so that's what it says is that, you know, you need to, it's all about communication. That's one of the things that I've, you know, and by having that communication has meant that, meant that, you know, that when, when things did go well, you could then celebrate, but, but recognize the support you got from your shareholders from the, during the bad times actually got you to when you had a good time, such as winning the investment from General Motors at the end of 2018. And then with, by 2020, we had COVID where we need to go back to our shareholders again. No one envisaged that COVID was going to have such a, an adverse effect on, especially mobility businesses. So we had incredible support because of the, because of the communication, and then and then eventually those share, those same shareholders had a, a great joint outcome when we um, when, when we went to the public markets in November last year. Wow! Yeah, no, I mean, you, there's no highs without the lows, and the lows definitely make the highs feel so much better. And one thing for our careers is that we can't do it ourselves, right? We have a great support system. So what's something that someone did for you in your career that like stands out that you're like, wow, that's you have a fond memory of? Uh, opening that first door, uh, you know, introducing me to people they didn't need to, but actually just trusting me. And I'm a great believer in that, in that, in that if people show trust in you, you, sh- you should always repay them. So those early days where, where, you know, I mean, I was introduced to some incredible high net worths and, um, and, and investors in the in the UK, where I, I can, there's two people who open those doors for me, and they've made a huge return from trusting me and just sort of you know trusting my you know my and trusting that 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 I that I would deliver. Okay, no, that's amazing because it's like those people really they just hold a special place in your heart. And you know the crazy thing is they they know they help you, but they really don't realize like how much that help means. And if they don't expect it back is even nicer when they actually, you know, they'll be there forever for you. So now let's kind of go back. So you don't have a degree. Has this ever held you back from any opportunity? Has this ever an investor kind of looked at you differently, someone that you're talking to, or it's never really come up? As an entrepreneur, I I don't, I've never had an investor ask me if I've got a degree. Um, Do I think it's ever held me back? I think, I think all life's experiences are add value. So I'm sure there's been moments in time when, if I'd been a bit more patient, then that could have well have helped me. But again, I think it stands resilience. And resilience is something that you can that that is difficult to learn. This idea that you need to just never be affected by a knockback and just kicking yourself up and going and going and going and going. I don't believe you can get that as, as in, in in a degree. And I've never been asked if I have a degree either um, in terms of the context of investor. Um, but that's not to say it doesn't help sometimes, you know, because because degrees, especially the right profile degree. I'm sure if I'd done um, a master's in in visualization in vehicle visualizations, that'd be incredibly helpful for the work we're now doing in AV. Um, but at the same point, 
I've got some incredible people who've got who've, who've got PhDs, who've got masters in relevant areas that are, that are helping exploit and provide great, incredible data science for uh, for us. Which you know you do need degrees in some in some of the complexities of the of the, of the work we're now doing. Yeah, no, it gets super complex, and some of these areas they're new fundamental areas that there are very few people. And you can't just Google some of these answers, so that's definitely one of the things. You'd have to Google a long time to know how to to know how to manipulate thirteen trillion data points in real time and come up with real time outcomes. So, you know that there are areas in our business as a data. You know, we we, we specialize in our data science and mobility data that needs that foundational um, academic support. Yeah. So now, let's talk about the landscape for those without degrees. So, you as a founder of a big company that's public. What are some areas that you think people without degrees should focus on that you kind of see a lot of opportunity? Because things are changing. Web3 is kind of changing. There are a lot of cloud certifications. That's a big area. What kind of areas do you see a lot of opportunity in? The vast majority of business, apart from data science and some engineering, um, academic qualification is, is not important. Experience is important. Is showing showing vision um, is is important. You know, so... In terms of our, our product design, someone who's got Web3 experience, who's got practical, who can show some practical sort of applications, that that'd be a very interesting sort of uh, facet for, uh, for, for, for a fast growth business. So having vision is important to us as an employer. We don't insist on degrees in most parts of the business. It's, it's, about, it's going to be about having that vision, having that, having that experience that, that's, going to, that's going to make you stand out. Yeah, I mean, experience is... Goes far, yeah. And then, and then, if you think more broadly, you know, in terms of you know, in terms of commercial roles, if you've got a track record, or you can demonstrate track record, or frankly, if you can hustle a meeting with me, you know, I've managed to get incredible meetings with some of the C-suite or you know, the chief executives, the chief operations officers, the chief technical officers, some of the biggest most manufacturers in the world. And it starts with me trying to put myself in the right place at the right time to get that meeting. And I've met incredible people from arranging to be there on the off chance you know so i've i've arranged myself to be in south korea on the off chance i might meet someone senior at, at, an, at an oem and it paid off for me i've arranged myself to be in a, a starbucks in, in detroit or a meeting on the on the west coast and having that grit and grind that doesn't need that doesn't need that doesn't need a degree to to do that and that has done very well for me and you know so i and i do get people who reach out to me in all sorts of uh Guys is trying to trying to get meetings with me, and, and I I'm always I, I encourage it, and I say equally I say to anyone at WeJo, my door's always open. If you have got an idea, come and talk to me. I absolutely love that. Right, that's how I got the podcast. I was like, you know what, let me go message, and you responded, and you know it was just my business partner heard you on a podcast, and again, it's you set yourself for opportunity, and you reach out, and you just never know what can happen. Do you know that's I I read um I read an interview with Steve Jobs um you know. Uh, I think it was 10, maybe 15 years ago. And he talks about he, he, he loves having meetings and it's always about talking. And if you talk, you learn new things. And I'm all for talking. You know, we, I'm all for just sharing new ideas. So if someone can get hold of me, if, if someone can manage to get, get, get that meeting for 15, 20, 30 minutes, why not? Let's do it. Because you, you never know what the outcome's going to be. And it's worked for me and it's how I've managed to get some incredible partnerships and relationships. Uh, and support for Weijo, so I, you know, why, 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 why shouldn't I allow anyone else to try and talk to me no, as well? I love that perspective. Now, this is going to be an interesting question. What would you tell your eighteen-year-old self if you were in front of your eighteen-year-old self and they were in twenty twenty-two? Right? Because there's a different advice to 
you know, the 18 year old self in nineties versus now. So what would you kind of tell your 18 year old self? What do you expect your 18 year old self to do? Be patient, take advantage of this opportunity to go slow and design something incredible with little, as little capital as possible. And then as we come out of this, this macroeconomic downturn we're going through at the moment, by 2024, you'll do something incredible. Don't go too fast, too quick right now. Yeah, I think that's great advice because so many people want things today, right? They're so used to like this quick you know, feedback with social media and all that. But good things come to... It takes time. Time is time is time. Yeah. And especially at the moment, there's no, you know, there's no rush to my 18, 18 year old self. There is no rush. No. Yeah, that's good. Do you know what areas that you would focus on? Do you kind of see yourself in web three? Do you see yourself as regular programming? Do you see web agency? What do you kind of see yourself doing? I mean, there's, there's clearly huge number of problems that needs to be solved. And I think web three is a bit of a catch all at the moment for any, you know, and I think the idea of decentralized is, is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, like, you know, using Coinbase as an example, they, they've now admitted that they're not decentralized at all. So I think there's a, I think there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. I think blockchain is massively inefficient. Ethereum is massively inefficient. So do I see myself in my 18-year-old guys focusing on the thing in Web3? I think there's probably other problems to be solved in terms of technology before I go down that route. Where I see myself as a 44-year-old is that I want to reduce deaths on the road. I want to reduce emissions in cities. I think it's very easy to say that you need to remove combustion engines off the road and focus on EV. There's all sorts of other, other facets of emissions you need to worry about. Uh, you need to focus on the sources of power. You need to focus on and the materials used to manufacture EVs as much as anything else. So maybe my 18-year-old self should be focusing on what, on what I'm doing as my 44-year-old self anyway, but focus on a, on a, on a macro level on, 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 on other areas of mobility and efficiency that need to be addressed. Yeah, so I guess more just focus on problems that need to be solved. I think that's a great way because you end up down so many rabbit holes and you're like, wow, I never knew I would go down this path. Yeah, and you know, and if you look about the supply, you look at the supply chain of mobility. It's a trillion-dollar industry, and there's huge amounts of inefficiencies, and there's at the uh, and there's government regulation forcing through change to how we all how we how, how the type of vehicles we're in. There's a there's a lot of challenges that needs to be solved. Uh, you know, that that needs super focus. Have you ever felt insecure about not having a degree? No, <laughs> no, not not for me, not for. Not for what I do every day, not for the people I get to meet. I don't put anyone on a pedestal. I think we're all the same. I mean, or of certain people, but I never put people on a pedestal. At the end of the day, we're all human beings and we all should be capable of having a conversation. So I do I think a degree has ever stopped me from having a having a robust debate? No. Uh having a having a really having a really nice conversation. No, I approach I, I approach everyone as the same. So has a degree have stopped me from doing what I want to do? No. Yeah. That's that's great to hear. So anybody who's listening, don't let it stop you from doing what you want. Now, let's slowly start to wrap up. Is there anything you want to share that you haven't shared already? Like a story, some piece of wisdom or advice? My advice is never take no for an answer. Persist. It's all about resilience. And if you have, an, if you have enough conversations with enough people, you will get there. And that's a piece of advice uh, that I, I learned from someone a long time ago and it's always worked well for me that if you work hard you get what you deserve in life so don't give up never give up yeah that's phenomenal advice now 
How would people go about supporting you? How would people go about contacting you? So I'm on Twitter. So I'm just Richard Weijo. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can email me Richard at Weijo.com. I am completely open. I might ask if we move if we can move our appointment three or four times, which I'm really sorry about. Uh, but I will try my best to always be open. I'm an open. I say to everyone, I am an open door. Come and talk to me, and I will do whatever I can do to try and support you. Uh, and if you know, and, and I, I'm a great believer in paying it forward. Wow, I love that. So, thank you so much for your time. I know the listeners got so much value. I'd love to have you on again in a few years when the landscape changes, and to kind of hear your next update. Really appreciate you. I wish you the best, the company best, and I wish the best to your family. Hey, nice to meet you. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. <laughs>